You're listening to the Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut, part of Ocus Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, research, and outreach. Hello, and welcome to Journal of Arthroplasties, The Cut. My name is Kevin Wise, and I'm a fourth year resident from Detroit interested in arthroplasty. Hi, everybody. I'm Kim Tucker, and I'm from Tucson, Arizona. And my name is Peter Gold, a private practice orthopathy surgeon in Denver, Colorado. This week, we'll be discussing recent publications from the Journal of Arthroplasty related to prosthetic joint infection. And we are extremely excited to announce our guest speaker for this week is Dr. Parvizi. Dr. Parvizi graduated medical school in the UK, did his residency at the Mayo Clinic, completed, then completed a fellowship with Dr. Gans overseas. He's a professor at the Sydney Kimmel School of Medicine and the Rothman Institute in Philadelphia. He has published over a thousand peer-reviewed publications, numerous book chapters, and most importantly, is a world thought leader on prosthetic joint infection, diagnosis, treatment, and management. Dr. Parvizi, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Kim. It's a pleasure to be on. We're really excited to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. The first paper that we are going to talk about is out of Taiwan, and it is called Risk Factors for Treatment Failure in Patients Who Have knee periprosthetic joint infection treated with two-stage exchange arthroplasty as well as their fate. This is a retrospective study of 203 patients who underwent two-stage exchange for periprosthetic joint infection. Treatment failure was defined as re-operation for recurrence or periprosthetic joint infection-related death, and 26.1% of these failed. They found risk factors for failure to be male sex and positive intraoperative cultures. They found that new microorganisms were present in recurrent infections in 64.2%, and they also found that DARE performed within six months of reimplantation and less than three weeks from symptom onset resulted in a higher success rate, and this was 44 out of 53. In this situation, I was interested, number one, in the number of patients that they had. They had 203 patients, and they generalized to male patients being more likely to have recurrent infections. First off, do you think that was enough patients to really say that? And also, if it was guys, why would that possibly be the case in this situation? Yeah, I think it's a great study. These are great investigators. I know them personally. Fabulous group of surgeons. So... Before I answer your question, Kim, I want to make three general observations about this paper. Number one is that this is yet again another paper from a very, very reputable academic center that's showing about 20 to 25% failure after two-stage exchange. So people who stand on the podium and say, two-stage exchange is 99% successful in my hands, please, please, you really have to look at these patients properly and stop throwing those numbers around because those numbers are not true. Number two observation is that positive interoperative culture was a predictor of failure. And that's actually along the line of multiple papers that have been published, including one from our institution, I think it was reference number 26 in their paper. It showed the same thing. And what that means, in my opinion, is that we are still not that good at determining the optimal timing of reimplantation. We are putting implants and when the patient's infection is not under control. So we need to really invest time and energy to try to develop better metrics for determining optimal timing. And the third is, yes, I am interested that you also picked on that. Men are at higher risk of reinfection. 
Well, every paper you read is actually men are more at risk of infection to start, not just in orthopedics, but in a lot of other fields as well. I'm not sure exactly why, but if I were to offer two possible hypotheses, one would be that men have a different microbiome than women, and men usually have a much higher bio burden than women. In other words, if you want to take this uh, little sort of uh, layman's term, men are basically dirtier than women. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it is. And that's what acne is higher in men, uh, failure after cardiac surgery is higher after it. So that's one possibility that the role of microbiome. The second could be potentially the role of testosterone and possibly prostate and prostate-related diseases. So we published a paper showing that men with benign prostatic hypertrophy were at a higher risk of infection. So it's possible that the hormones, the male hormones, are playing a role that we are not aware of. But very good observation. And actually, I was very, very impressed with this paper. Yeah, that's super interesting. I'm also glad to know that it's not just U.S. men. It's also internationally as well. So just one quick question I had, just in terms of about the new microorganisms, right? They found that 64% were new microorganisms and 15% were culture negative. You know, I know you've obviously done a bunch of work with next generation sequencing. And do you feel like these are new organisms or were these organisms that were probably there on the first stage and missed through culture? The latter, for sure. We have a signal showing that majority of these microorganisms that are grown in culture at a later failure were actually also present, or at least their DNA signature was present at the time of resection arthroplasty. We have to remember that infection is not caused by one organism. There's a whole spectrum of organisms that are in that joint. And unfortunately, these organisms are taking turn. So antibiotic pressure and possibly treatment leads a person that had failed with Staph aureus initially to come back and fail with Pseudomonas. But that's not really a new infection. It's an infection by an organism that was not acting as a pathogen at the first infection. And in terms of finding these bugs, getting the positive intraoperative culture, you know, do you see or know of any difference getting culture from aspiration versus getting culture from you know, in, intraoperative? I mean, maybe even with this, if you have a multiple infected patient, you might even go in and take a biopsy culture sample before you go in and do the second stage if it's that important. Yeah, yeah certainly that would be... I think the future, Peter, is as you know from our previous conversations, the future is going to have to rely on better techniques than just the primitive culture that we've been using. Of course, I'm conflicted. I work with companies that offer next-generation sequencing as a consultant. I don't own a company. I don't personally feel it has to be next-generation sequencing. I think it can be a molecular technique of some sort. The DNA signature is easier to pick up then have planktonic organisms that we have to grow on a culture medium in a given environment. And unfortunately, these organisms are very difficult to grow, particularly if they are in a so-called viable but not culturable state, the VBNC. That's a new concept that's been brought to our attention by Professor Lewis from Northeastern University. So VBNCs are a problem. That's why we are still seeing so much culture negative, even in florid infections, let alone 
in a situation like the reimplantation or subtle circumstances. How do you see those sometimes being not clinically important, though, in that situation? I think that's going to be really hard to judge when we start having these molecular tests. And just wondering your thoughts on that. Great question, Kim. An organism is only a pathogen if that organism is causing damage to the local or the systemic host. And a pathogen, by definition, will be secreting enzymes that are damaging to, like proteases, etc. So you're absolutely right. We just talked about microbiome. We have a huge number of organisms in our joints and in other parts of our body. And if you did a next generation sequencing or any molecular technique, you've got to pick up those DNA signals of organisms that are potential pathogens but are not acting as a pathogen and they are in equilibrium. So I think that's why in the future, if we're using molecular techniques, we need to combine that with something else that will show that there is a signature of local and uh, systemic damage. And just to zoom out a little bit on this topic, you know, we talked a little bit about two-stage. Where is Jay Parvizi today in the DARE versus double DARE versus one-stage versus two-stage? You know, I feel like in, in the U.S., the trend is really starting to change from 100% two-stage to people starting to, to play around in, in other avenues. So where are you on that spectrum? We were part of that randomized prospective study that Tom Faring is leading. So we were doing really 50-50. But right now, if you ask me, I would say about 60-70% of the cases I do are now still the two-stage exchange because I did one today. Extremely complicated cases. They're being handed to us down the line with osteomyelitis, soft tissue damage, etc. If I got to these cases early, if the organism was favorable and if the host was optimized, absolutely. I think one stage exchange has a role. To your point, Peter, what we have come to realize is that that dogmatic approach that we used to hold, that every chronic peripostatic joint infection must undergo two-stage change, is being questioned. And that in itself, I think, is very valuable. What we will need there will be signals, of course, of these papers being published. And that BMJ paper from Steve Jones, the UK and Swedish collaborative that just came out, shows that you could actually do one-stage exchange. A lot of these cases that we just thought that must undergo two-stage exchange. So changing that dogma, identifying patients, and each surgeon will develop his or her own way of determining what patient qualifies for one-stage one patient qualifies for two stage. I think we're going to see more and more of one stages and we're going to see better outcomes with one stage as well. As for DARE, I think DARE has a great role in management of acute infections. And I would actually take it even all the way out to six weeks if these patients are favorable. And we have that DARE calculator that we did that European initiative that you can put all these risk factors and it gives you a percentage failure or success rate. But there, in this particular circumstance, interesting as Kim mentioned, was protective if it was done within three weeks of symptoms or within six months. I think that's another attempt at bio-burden reduction. That's why I think we're seeing a better outcome in that group of patients. 
All right, let's move to the next article. Some guy named Jay Parvizi published this one in uh, JOA this month. It's called Sterile Setup Table in the Operating Room is Not So Sterile. They looked at 52 patients. They took two air swabs and two table swabs using both culture stick and NGS, next generation sequencing swabs. And from the table, 12.5% of the swabs grew. And from the air, 10.6% of the swabs grew, and they found different organisms from both culture and next generation sequencing. So I think this study tells us something that maybe we all know, and no matter what we do, there will still be pathogens in the air, on the back table, in our gowns, and so on and so forth. So you've been at this infection game for a while, Dr. Parvizi. What can we do? You know, What is an acceptable amount of bacteria that we're comfortable with, and at what point does the fight need to end or keep yeah, going? Great question. And I agree with you. Everybody knows. This. So if you think about source of infection, it is three sources. Number one is the patient's own flora, skin, oral cavity, etc. Number two is contamination of implants or instruments that you're taking into the field, including our gloves. And number three is droplets from room air, right? So our efforts should focus on those three areas to try to reduce fibers. And I think you just said something very important and very subtle there. How many bacteria do we need? Well, that changes depending on the immune threshold of the host and the virulence of the bacterium. So that's the conceptual formula of CDC. So what we want to do is reduce fire burden while enhancing the immune threshold of the host. The reason the back table study is important is how many of you truly see your implants being assembled in the back table. When they take the acetabular component out of the packaging, put it on the back table, and then they get the handle, and that rotating on that back table, back in and out, and then you then take that back and put it in the uh, inside the patient, right? Or a lot of these things are being assembled in the back table. I think what you just said earlier is very important. You cannot operate in a sterile environment. That doesn't exist. It's just how many organisms or pathogens are in there. The cautery tip is contaminated. Light handle is contaminated. Your visor on the personal protection system is contaminated. Suction tip is contaminated. Back table is contaminated. Gloves are con So the list goes on, right? Organisms are everywhere. Our efforts should be to try to minimize letting the implants at minimum come into contact with those contaminated surfaces. As you went through that list, my heart rate just started going up and up and up and up. Well, it's, it's true though, right? That's why I think at the end of the day, whether the number of microorganisms finding their way into the surgical incision exceeds the immune threshold of that given host, you'll get an infection. If it doesn't, you won't. I will tell you, I stressed out a little more today after reading your paper. When I saw the implants go onto the back table, I was like, no, no, don't put them on there. Yeah. And the other thing came is also the, like the femoral component, when they hand it to you, they're grabbing it on that porous surface. I usually ask them, grab it on the trunnion. And I usually put plastic or something protected and not to rub against the skin as it goes into the bone. These are all just small steps that we can all implement without any cost to the healthcare or the society. And it's all efforts to try to minimize the number of microorganisms finding their way to the surgical site. So tell me about your room then. So when you go into the OR, are you a completely closed room? You don't have people take breaks. You have a certain number of people in your room. How do you do this personally? 
Yeah, I mean, Peter will know from our experience. We we try to mandate minimizing OR traffic, but having said that, that's still sometimes necessary. I don't like during revisions or like total femur today with another revision. We absolutely do not give breaks during that. And nursing staff would be fantastic. They work with us. We educate the anesthesia because remember, anesthesia are also a source of OR traffic. We educate them and try to minimize the number of in and outs and like, or also holding the door open and having a conversation. We've moved stuff into the room. So most commonly used instruments and uh, stuff that uh, the circulator has to walk out of the room doesn't have to happen anymore. Yeah. So our traffic, very, very important. You know, one of my partners, Matt Austin, published a paper on how important it was, how many times a door opened during the procedure. So we definitely do less, control the OR traffic as much as possible, and then implement, uh, you know, steps like what we just talked about to try to reduce fire burden. One thing I, we spoke about before, I think it'd be informative for listeners to hear too, is what about in the back table, there's a lot of different protocols and rules that hospitals have in terms of cleaning off the instruments in the water bucket or what's your thoughts on that and best practices to decrease? I definitely think the basin, the back table basin that we used to have, that really should be abandoned. I hope none of you are using it, but if you are using it, I really don't think there is a role. There is any role for that. If you have to use a back basin, which is rare, then I would highly recommend that instead of saline, we put some sort of an antiseptic solution. There was a JOA paper showed that when you put PVPI, povidine iodine irrigation solution inside that back basin, that was much, much better. The number of cultures that were positive was much less than if you were doing it just saline. Dr. Parvizi, is there like a thing when you walk into an OR, you would just freak out about something that you could comment on and also like maybe apply this to a surgery center as well? Yeah, I would freak out seeing people that are getting too close to the sterile field with their gowns that are sort of out of their pants and all touching all over the place. I freak out too many people in the room who don't really belong there. Yeah, definitely freak out when I see fellows or residents that they're doing dissection with their fingers and hands inside the womb. Peter will know one of the things I, my pet peeve is fingers in the womb and instruments are for a reason to use. So those are like three of my pet peeves, but there are more. I mean, like if, if there's a contamination, we have, today I had a medical student and a second year resident scrubbed it. In the beginning, I tell them, look, it is absolutely fine for you to get contaminated. If you do, just let us know and we'll hold off and you change gloves. Because a lot of these people are worried about telling you that they're contaminated and they just bring everything back into the field. And then I don't like Paul Slavage and I actually don't like the surgical helmets very much, but we have to use them because obviously the blood splashing on our faces. But a lot of surgical helmets are also contaminated after a period of time. I think what also made him freak out was when I was a fellow, anytime they handed me the knife, he would freak out. So. I, uh, you should see some of the fellows we have this year, buddy. No, that's not, <laughs> that's not true at all. You know that. Uh, One point that you just brought up, and just in terms of 
the OR team and whether it's medical students or staff. And a lot of this is a huge burden as if you're the surgeon and you're the only person in the room that really cares about this or is watching out for these kind of things. Sometimes it's too much to do the surgery and take care of the patient and also all this. So it's super important to have the OR staff and team who are also on the same page as you and on board because they're also looking out at the same time. And if they're on board with it, uh, I think they do a really good job of helping to keep it. Scary. I agree. But Peter, I think the education has to come from the surgeon. He or she must mandate some requirements and he or she must live by those rules as well, by the way. You can't tell people you can't wear these gowns or you have to wear a mask or you have to you know, tie your helmet properly, etc. Well, you're not doing that yourself. So we have to be the role model. And to your point, you have to have your workforce actually embrace those values because the common goal is to try to protect the patient. And if you all know that we're doing these things with one and one goal only, that I think it becomes a real teamwork. I agree with you. You can't be the only one. The whole team has to has to be on board. Before we move on to the next topic, I actually have one more question for Dr. Parvizi. In addition to being a great researcher, you're obviously also a great surgical innovator. So when we talk about having a more sterile environment in the operating room, what do you envision as something that is, is an idea right now that in the next couple of years or decade may actually be able to be in place that improves the sterile environment that which we do operate. Thank you, Kevin. You guys are really fluffing my feather. We should do more of these uh, podcasts. I, <laughs> I wish my family were around to hear all these great accolades that you're throwing at my department. Thank you very much. You know, there's a couple of very, very important areas that we actually have not been able to improve on. I am worried that instruments are usually very contaminated and they come up. One area that's really very primitive is holding that drape in the, to the light and looking for holes. We just did a study that showed majority of the holes up to about centimeter and a half to two centimeters are missed by our circulating. And that's absolutely understandable, especially you're doing that so fast, everybody's under time pressure. But that's one area I think it requires innovation. The second is the environmental impact of surgery right now is massive. Have you seen how many bags we take out of the operating room when we're done? I personally think we need to absolutely pay attention. A majority of this stuff is plastic, as very, very non-degradable material. So I think we need to innovate and reduce. So disposable, like sometimes the environmental impact of having like 10, 15 trays open for a case, these are the areas. And then finally, the third would be, I would love to see an operating room where there's not these tubes and wires and everything else hanging around where people fall on themselves. So a lot of room for innovation, but we've started going in the right direction. I think some of these things will become reality in the next few years before I retire. Can I ask a quick question as somebody at a smaller hospital? How likely are you to operate in a room that has not been clean, like with like an open bowel case before? Like how long will you wait before you'd go in a room since you mentioned that? Yeah, Kim, I would not operate do a joint replacement in a room that just had a bowel or a contaminated case. I would like to see them do a terminal cleansing and terminal cleansing takes hours. So that's not going to happen. So in a hospital like yours, 
if they're forcing you to do joint replacement in a room that had a contaminated case in them, I would be very, very resistant. Antonia Chen, when she was a fellow with us, she actually looked at these. Um, and what we found, if I'm, I hope I'm not misquoting her study, but we did see a higher incidence of infection when a case followed uh, contaminated cases, even though we don't do that at Jefferson very often. And the other problem is actually the cases that are being done later in the day are more likely to be contaminated. And there's multiple reasons for it. The staff may be tired and maybe, but it's all the by burden buildup throughout the day. So terminal cleansing is very, very critical. Ah, oh, that's interesting because I always put my revisions last just because I want to have as much yeah, time. Yeah. But yeah, that's really interesting to think about because those are probably the highest risk for infection. So maybe I should be actually doing those first or doing those do, on there. Do you have two rooms day. or do you have two I, rooms? Or? Most of the time I don't. Most of the time I only have one room. Yeah, but because we have two rooms. And we start the revisions in the second room and the primaries in the first room. Mm-hmm. But you're absolutely right. I mean, some of these revisions are very, very important to be done early. So we'll move on to the third paper. This paper is called Dislocation After Debridement, Antibiotics, and Implant Retention for a Periprosthetic Joint Infection of the Hip. This paper is out of MGH. That's a hospital in Boston, for those of you who do not know. And it's a retrospective study of 151 DARES over the last 20 years. They found that about 20% of their post-DARE hips had dislocations, 16.3% of primary hips, and 25.4% of revision hips. They found that there was an 11-fold reduction in those hip dislocations if the components were exchanged to increase stability. So they either increased the offset, the jump distance, or uh, put in a more stable acetabular liner. And they also found that there was a 13-fold increase in patients that had neuromuscular diseases for post-op dislocations. So Dr. Parvizi, my initial reaction seeing these numbers, 16% after primaries, 25 after revisions, I thought that was a little high. Have you seen that in your practice? And you know, what was your initial reaction to the results? So I think this is not surprising. I agree it's a little higher than what we have seen, but here, you know, we do a lot of DA hips, et cetera. So most of these were postrolateral. But this is similar to isolated liner exchange. You know, when a paper came out of Anderson Clinic a while back, and we also a very high rate of dislocation after isolated polyethylene exchange for the hip. And uh, I think now that has been reflected in multiple studies. Part of this, I think we can all speculate, relates to the fact that you have to do so much of extensive soft tissue dissection and debridement. And you're doing these most of the time with implants in place and you're trying to change the modular components. So you're doing a lot more release than you would do. So it is not surprising, but I do think that the rate is probably a little less for other approaches to the hip. So our results here, I don't know what it is, but dislocation after a dare I'm not sure if I've ever seen one in my patient population, but I'm sure it's happened. So it's actually a very illuminating study, though. It does bring attention to the fact that we just, in these DARE patients, all we focus on is the infectious complications, but other things can happen to these patients, too. One of the things that I saw in this study that concerned me a little bit was the acetabular cup position within the safe zone was very low 
in both groups. So maybe we're not putting these in where we think we are also. And I'm just wondering if you all had any thoughts about that too. Yeah. And again, MGH group also published another paper in their primaries a while ago. They showed that a lot of these astabular components were outside the safe zone. So I'm sure that's the same in a lot of other institutions as well. That uh, to your point, Kim, we think we're putting this astabular component in a great position, but maybe we are not. And then you just need to have a second hit, the second hit being that soft tissue dissection, another surgery that makes a subtle malpositioning more important now because they're going to dislocate. Yeah. And one thing, Peter, I think you and I were talking about this earlier is that you know, this will probably change how I approach these. I think I'll be a little more careful and potentially use higher constraint components on these INDs with the poly exchanges instead of just putting the same poly in or something like that. What about you all? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great paper and definitely a, a practice changing paper. It's a super easy change to make, and I don't really see a downside in, in doing so. You know, I wonder, Dr. Parvizi, do you think there's any difference in terms of maybe recurrent infection or having some kind of infection implications of going to a lipped liner versus changing to a dual mobility and putting a metal liner? I mean, do, do you think that would change anything with infection or let's just make it more stable? And it'll I think on? it would definitely make it more stable. But as you know, Peter, we don't really, with uncemented total hips, we don't do just there. We really do want a stage exchange because those components are easy to whack out if they haven't actually integrated. We take those out, and to Kim's point, perhaps a subtle malpositioning of the acetabular component. Now you will really be very careful to make sure you put them in the right place. I guess one other thing that would be interesting to talk about associated with this is the soft tissue um, changes associated with DARE and total hip replacements. Do you mind commenting on that, Dr. Parvizi? Any histological changes that you see, not just besides stretching things out, but how we're actually changing these, and especially in community practices. I've seen people do more than one dare, two dare. It's just kind of a lot sometimes. So this may be changing the tissue that we're working with. Absolutely. And some of the proteases being produced by bacteria and the microorganisms, they lead to collagen degradation, for example. We've seen those. We see necrosis. You see apoptosis. You see a lot of histological changes in the soft tissues in the presence of infection. We see VEGF being produced at a very, very high level in infected cases. You all know when you're doing infected cases, you see how much they bleed. That's all VEGF. So that leads to hematoma formation, which in itself is another risk factor for dislocation. I think the soft tissue handling during the procedure, a multiple surgical approach. And then some of these dares, you know, you're going back to these patients' hips and knees soon after their initial procedure where there hasn't been any soft tissue healing. So they're getting another hit. So absolutely. Extensive dissection in order to be able to do a proper dare. Synovectomy, the pathological influence and uh, effect of proteases produced and enzymes, degradation enzyme produced by bacteria. Then on top of that, the multiple operations that these patients have endured, all of those add together. And I think that's why it leads to such a high dislocation rate. Is there an ideal time in your mind or in your practice if you're going to be doing a double dare or you need to go back in on a patient? How long do you want to wait before you go back? So I do double dare on all mega prosthesis. 
So proximal femoral replacement, DFRs, other stuff. If they're infected, I will take them back, do extensive debridement, change the modular parts, or maybe not, and then leave a drain, come back within three or four days and do another one, and then change the modular parts at that point. So omega prosthesis, I would do double there. In complex revisions where you had to do like extensive acetabular components or other types of reconstruction, I think those would probably also benefit from double dare. But the rest of the time, I think one dare should usually suffice. But again, remember that acute infections of the hip with uncemented components that haven't fully integrated, we would definitely change those components. It's really the knees where we can't and we just end up changing the polyethylene. In those cases, any data in terms of putting in a cemented stem with antibiotic cement or going ahead and put it, doing another cementless construct, any different? We stem? do cementless, and Eric Hansen, one of our fellows, published that paper together with uh, the British experience. But the Exeter group have published showing that when you put a cemented antibiotic impregnated cement during there, it improves the outcome more. So possibly local delivery of antibiotics using cement may be okay. But unfortunately, as you know, the results of cemented revision from an uncemented component also has a higher failure rate in terms of loosening. So you sort of have to balance those, the data that you have at hand to see which of those is going to benefit your patient at the time. After you mentioned using a, a drain, sometimes in these patients, it's a good segue into our last article. This is titled, Routine Use of Closed Suction Drains Following Revision Arthroplasty May Not Be Necessary. This is out of Rothman and UCLA, where they retrospectively reviewed over 2,000 patients, about 470 of which were treated with a closed suction drain postoperatively. And in this study, there's no statistically significant difference in the rate of transfusion, total blood loss, or wound complications between those who were treated with closed drain suction and those without. Interestingly, patients treated with the closed drain suction did have a shorter length of stay on average with about a day and a half shorter length of stay. I'm just curious, when are you deciding to use a drain? And has this in your practice become less and less frequent? Thank you, Kevin. We don't use drains in the primary joint replacements. We haven't done so for the past 20, 25 years that I've been here. There's been multiple studies published showing that use of drain in primary joint replacement is unnecessary leads to increase in blood loss, transfusion rate, etc. The only thing drain does in a primary is reduces ecchymosis, perhaps, and bruising. That's it. And there's two or three Cochrane databases that have proven that to be the case. Numerous, numerous randomized prospective studies. Revisions are different, though. And not all revisions are the same. I mean, there are revisions where you go in there and just pop out one uh, modular component, and then you close up, and there are revisions where you do megaprosthesis, et cetera. So the question is, one, when do you use a drain? And two, does the use of drain serve its intended objective? So in the revisions, very rare that we use a drain now, or for a long time I haven't. The only time I think drain serves a function would be if you have a large dead space, you know, you do the massive or... Um, debridement, et cetera, and you've left a large dead space and it's just impossible for you to close that dead space. So I think it's 
imperative to use a drain in that situation to reduce hematoma formation, seroma formation. And the other time for the use of drain would be if you have an infected case where you really don't want anything to collect after you've done the, um, uh, you know, you've done your debridement. Other than that, very rare that we use drain. So this has changed our practice. And again, Peter will know from his experience, it's very rare that we use drain in a revision case at all. Yeah, I, yeah, I remember, I think we really rarely use drains in, in revisions. Could you just take us back and just tell us a little bit about the history of, you know, when you're using drains and all the primary knees and how did it come about? How did it change? Whose idea was it? You know, what's the, the yeah, history? So we did a randomized perspective study when I started here. They were being used on a regular basis. It was delaying patients' discharge. It was painful for patients to have them taken out. Some drains were being sawn in, and and then we were seeing a lot of hemoglobin drops. So we did a randomized perspective study, found that the hem- it was protective. Hemoglobin was staying, and patients were going home earlier, et cetera. So it's just like all the other stuff that we've done, like hip precaution. When I arrived here, we were using hip precaution on everybody. We did a randomized perspective study, not necessarily. We were using urinary catheter and everybody was getting spinal anesthesia, et cetera. So it was one of those questions that we asked. We did this study. And then, as you know, in Rothman, once you have the paper out, all the surgeons will embrace it and they will put their personal preferences aside. I think that's really, really important. And that's how this happened. And in the primaries, extremely rare that we would ever use a drain. And the same question that we asked, granted this couldn't be done in a prospective manner, is this paper where we looked at it retrospectively and we found that there wasn't much role for the drain. Part of this, though, I will tell you, is the administration of tranexamic acid. That has absolutely impacted the practice and the use of drain for sure. Dr. Parvizi, is there ever a situation in which you aren't giving TXA? I mean, we give TXA to everybody except patients who have allergy to TXA. That's it. Colorblindness, stents, previous history of DVT, VT, etc. None of these are risk factors. You know that Yale Fillingham and the work group from AHKS, ACUS, put a great guidelines out there. If you're having any issues with your anesthesia, trying to convince them, you should definitely show them the consensus guidelines. But basically, the only contraindication is an anaphylactic reaction to TXA, which I'm not sure if anybody has. Dr. Parvizi, is there anything else that you want to comment on on any of these papers that we didn't get to that you thought was really important that we should know about? First of all, thank you for selecting these articles. I think they were all fantastic. Of course, I'm a little biased. <laughs> two. The two good ones you chose. There were two really good ones. Exactly. No, they they were great. And you have been incredible, the three of you, in terms of your probing questions and very, very uh, intelligent questions in terms of trying to bring, highlight some of the important stuff. Two things I will tell you that is very, very important and moving forward will really change the way we do things. One is the fact that, as Peter mentioned, the management of... PJI is definitely going to be more and more of a one stage and potentially an abbreviated two stage because there are now technologies or innovations that are allowing us to deliver very high doses of local antibiotics, either through device, 
intraosseous methods, catheters, etc. The second is that there is a difference between how a dare is done. And I think that's a subtle thing that we probably didn't talk about. How you do dare is critical to its success. You can't make small insertion. You can't do it arthroscopically. You can't do it without changing the modular components. You must use chemical as well as physical debridement. The physical debridement, obviously, extensive cyanobectomy, but chemical debridement with use of multiple antiseptic solutions, etc. So for the younger surgeons that are coming up, they need to recognize that it's very, very important to be thorough when you're doing it there. It is not an operation for a second-year resident to do. Attending needs to be there from the beginning to the end. And it's probably one of the most important operations because when that fails, it's a disaster for the patient. So so what do you do in a situation, though, where you're gone over the weekend and your like sports partner is covering for you or your spine partner or something like that, and you've got 48 hours or something until you get back in town? Are you just calling all your buddies who are joints people and saying, please do this for me? Or how are you going with that? Great question. And I again, that's that's obviously a major problem for the community surgeons. for, But Kim, I wonder if in those cases, I would be inclined just to hold the patient until I come back. Okay. Because I know the 48 hours sort of may seem like a long time, but and this is not sort of obviously detract from value of our partners doing a great job, but Sometimes I will feel guilty if it was done by somebody else and failed. I will feel less guilty if it was done by myself and failed because I'll know that I did everything and anything possible. I think I would wait in that situation. And during that time, they can be optimized. The patient can be optimized. Their anticoagulation can be stopped, et cetera, and then maybe ready for a Monday morning. I don't think it's an emergency. And that came out in the international consensus discussion, actually, People felt that there is not an emergency. It might be an urgent operation, but certainly not an emergency. And I don't know if you're ever waking up in the middle of the night and going and doing it there, but I don't think any of us should be doing that. Awesome. Well, with that, thank you again so much, Dr. Parviz, for joining us on today's episodes. For all the listeners, if you want to check out these articles in more depth, there will be links to each of these that can be found in the episode description. If you have any feedback for us about the episodes or about a topic you would like to see covered in a future episode, please email us at joathecut at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time on JOA's The Cut. Thank you for joining us for the Journal of Arthroplasty's The Cut. Visit AUKUS.org to learn more about how members of American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, investigate, and perform humanitarian outreach in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.